0: One of the things that we learn as we read this chapter is the principle, one of the principal things we learn is that the state of Christ church and the state of your heart as a believer is of great interest and receives personal attention from God the Father. Listen again, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now here, of course, the vine, as we saw last time, is more than just a metaphor. Although it's a good metaphor. Vines typically require meticulous attention far more than other other means of production. And uh, unfruitful branches need to be removed so that they prevent them from sapping strength from healthy branches. And useless growth on fruitful branches needs to be pruned back so as to facilitate a good yield. So the metaphor stands alone, but that's not how Jesus is using it. What he is teaching us is that the church of God, that is, the church corporately and the church in terms of its individual parts, its constituent parts, you are the branches, Jesus says, requires constant attention from our Heavenly Father. And Jesus describes, first of all, the Father's work. He says, the work of the Father is to prune or to cleanse. That is to cleanse the church. That's a regular feature of the Father's work is to make the church fit and ready in order to function as the body of Christ, as the work of God, the church of God in the world. And Jesus has illustrated this earlier on in chapter 13. We we spent some time looking at that great illustration. We keep referring back to it because it's The prevailing action that guides the rest of the address on this last evening of Jesus' life. And you remember there, he washed the disciples' feet. They thought he was just engaging in an ordinary act, although it was, to them by surprise, the ordinary act of just washing their feet because they walked through the dirty streets of Palestine to get to their dinner event that evening. But he tells them that, in fact, it was far more than that. It was far more than a physical washing of feet. It was a picture, an example of the fact that he had come into the world to pour out his life to death in order that he might provide them with the cleansing that they needed. And to underline the fact that this was spiritual cleansing, he identifies the fact that they are all clean except one. Judas, the betrayer, had not received the cleansing work of Jesus Christ in his life. What we discover is that the Father uses the work of the Son to rid us of everything that inhibits spiritual life and growth in our hearts. So when we're talking about walking in fellowship with the Father, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all unrighteousness the father applies by the spirit the work of his son the blood of his son as it were to cleanse us to make us clean and fit for the presence of god or again in in titus our great god and savior jesus christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness did so in order that he might cleanse us to be a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So the Father's work is cleansing. And you'll notice that one of the the means the Father uses in verse 3 is the word of Jesus. The word of Jesus is one of the means the Father uses to make us clean and to get us fit for his presence and for coming to approach him tonight. Listening to the very word of God washes you clean. Even when you are not consciously taking notes and learning lessons and grasping its truth, the Word of God objectively has a cleansing ministry in the minds of God's people. You will not be able to take in what I'm going to say tonight, even though this is, this is in this evening service, the sermons are sermons for dummies, as opposed to the morning where you require a bit more Uh, Effort, because you're more awake. So even though it's a dumbed-down sermon for you tonight, uh, which I do for your benefit and for mine because it's less work, uh, the the, the reality is that the Word of God does the work. The Word of God cleanses us. It, It has objectively an effect upon the people of God whether they are conscious of it or not, whether they're learning something or not, the word is doing the work in the people of God. And so he says, already you are clean, that is those who are left are clean because of the word that he had spoken to them. And I know, I know from the text that they're not understanding everything. Jesus has just said that in chapter 13. He said to them earlier that evening, you don't understand this now. So even though you're hearing things which tonight you don't understand, please don't underestimate the power and impact of the Word of God in cleansing and renewing you. It is a vital power. We are born again by the Word of God. We are fit for heaven by the Word of God. The Word of God is constantly having an impact, and it's the Father's instrument to achieve His purpose. That's the third thing, the Father's purpose. The Father's purpose, what is He about in our lives? He is about the business of what? Bringing forth fruit from our lives. That's what the Father's about in your life and mine. Uh, We looked some, when we last looked at this chapter, I think it was last week, most of you were at home snugly, tucked up beside your fireplace perhaps or in front of the television or in front of your computer watching the service. (laughs) Uh, 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 But we notice then that this image of the vine is actually a picture of Israel. Israel is the vine. And Jesus is saying that he is the true Israel and now what defines Israel is not its relationship to Moses but its relationship to Jesus. And so whether you're a Jew or a Gentile whether you belong to the Israel of God today has to do with whether or not you belong to the Lord Jesus. That's the, the picture that's painted there. He is the vine, we are the branches. We find our identity in our relationship to Him. And just as in Israel, in the Old Testament, God uses this image of the vine the in vine, the, vine, the vineyard and He tells us there, for example, in Isaiah chapter 5, that God was looking... For justice, and he found bloodshed. He was looking for righteousness, and he found an outcry. God was looking for fruit from Israel. It was the fruit of righteousness. When John the Baptist comes and he preaches, he starts his ministry of preaching a a baptism of repentance, he he calls on the people to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance. When Jesus is warning us against false prophets and false teachers, those who come in, those wolves that come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves, he says this, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. He's making this point. You will recognize them by their fruit. When the Apostle Paul is describing the the effect of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of God's people, he talks about fruitfulness. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When he's writing to the Philippians, he prays that they might be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Of God and when he's writing to the Colossians he says walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God and that's just a little a little summary of things you you get from all of those quotations what is the fruit bearing that God is looking for God is passionately interested that his people demonstrate the reality of their life in Christ. Now notice that. They are already in Christ. They are already connected to Christ. They already have the life of Christ within them. But God the Father is passionately concerned that his church, the church of God, the Israel of God, the people of God, demonstrate that the life of God is within them by producing the fruit of good works. And the fruit born by Jesus, followers, is this all-encompassing compassi- com- re- reference to ev- the evidences of growth and the results of spiritual life in the heart of the believer. So the whole flow of this passage then is the, is the theology of the new covenant, that by your connection to now Jesus, the head of the new covenant— The life of the head begins by the power of the Spirit indwelling you to produce itself in a change. Now, it's not an an absolute change. Do you notice that? Even the fruit-bearing branches need to be cut back in order to produce more fruit. This is not a description of perfection. You will never be perfect. I know know you're as perfect as a church gets, but, but you will never be perfect perfect until... We wake up in glory. That's the reality. We live as uh, Martin Luther described it. Simul justus et peccator. At one and the same time justified and yet sinners. That's the reality of the church on earth. But incremental movement and transformation takes place in the life of the believer as we begin to produce the fruit of of good works. Now, it's important, I think, therefore, as we look back at this metaphor again and the way Jesus uses it here is to say this, that it is the work of God from first to last, first of all, to place us into the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, when he's writing to the uh, Corinthians, puts it like this, He, that is the Father, is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification and redemption. The Father's business, the Father's delight, is to place you in the Lord Jesus Christ, to unite you to him, so that by being united to him, you might be declared righteous, on the one hand, you might be given the Holy Spirit, therefore begin to become righteous on the other hand. Jesus has already said this in chapter 14, verse 20. He says, I am, the, I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. God has made this connection with Christ very real in the life of the believer. And it's the life of the stock, that is the life of Christ, that produces fruit in the lives of Christians. There is this channel of life from the vine to the branches, from the Lord to his people. And if perchance there should be no connection, if perchance, in fact, there should only be a formal connection to Christ. Let's think about what that might look like for a moment. A formal connection to Christ then there will be no fruitfulness. This was god 's great argument, you remember with Israel in the Old Covenant? Paul summarizes it like this in Romans. He says, "Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham simply because they 're genetically descended from Abraham. There are those who 've got the spirit that indwelled Abraham, indwelling their spirit. And there are those who really belong to the people of God, not just formally, but they belong dynamically because the power of God dwells in them. That's absolutely vital. This formal connection to Christ is, is one of the great dangers of the church around the world today. It was a danger even in the upper room. We've seen as we've gone over these chapters how one of them left. That man was Judas. He appeared to be a disciple. He followed Jesus. He told people he was Jesus' disciple. He was sent out on on mission trips by Jesus as one of his disciples. From the outside, externally, he looked like Jesus' disciple. He even had a job to do in the church. He was the treasurer of the church. He was responsible for the money. Not only was he responsible to look after the money, but he was also in charge of mercy ministry. He gave money to the poor. He had work to do within the body of Jesus' disciples. But the life of Jesus was not in Judas. Judas was attached to the vine. The way branches are attached to Christmas artificial Christmas trees. Or, or perhaps better, the way Christmas decorations are attached even to a live Christmas tree. That was the way Judas was attracted to, attached to Jesus. You're wondering why I thought Christmas decorations, it's because Christine got rid of the last ones this week. And I'm grieving, grieving the loss of them. But that's the reality. There are many people in churches today. Maybe you're one of them. Here tonight, and your attachment to Jesus is that kind of attachment. You are a Christmas decoration on the tree, on the vine, rather than a branch of the vine that has life in it, dynamic life in it. Jesus often confronted this in the lives of the people he preached to. You remember he said to those uh, religious leaders who came to him and they were boasting in the fact that Abraham was their father and Jesus challenged them. And he said, no, look, if you had Abraham as your father, you would do what Abraham did. What did Abraham do? Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad. You don't. You're of your father, the devil. In John chapter 8, he talks about those who believed in him and followed him. And then at some point in the following of Jesus, they turned away from him. They showed that they did not really belong to him. I think it's important for us to know that that, that belief, faith operates at a variety of levels. It's possible to believe on Jesus. It is necessary to believe into Jesus. When the apostle John is writing his uh, epistles, his letters later on, He talks about some people in the fellowship that he's writing to and uh, he describes these people. They were among them. They belonged to the group. And then he says, they've gone out from us and they've shown by going out from us that in fact they never belonged to us. They never belonged. They were among us, but they never belonged. The life of God was not in them. They were artificially attached. They were not dynamically attached. So what kind of union is this? Being in the vine. What kind of union is this? Well, first of all, it's a faith union. Whenever the Bible talks about believing in the Lord Jesus, it actually says believing into the Lord Jesus. Faith connects us vitally to Christ. Jesus is now the focus of God's plan of salvation. He now defines what it means to be part of the Israel of God. So Jews and Gentiles have to believe into the Lord Jesus, and by believing into the Lord Jesus, they become part of God's family because they come to God now in God's terms. Not only is it by faith, but it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit baptizes people into Jesus. That, that refers, by the way, to the beginning of the Christian life. There is absolutely no believer, no Christian who has not been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit baptism is initial baptism. It is the baptism by the Spirit of a person into the Lord Jesus Christ. The placing of a wild branch, and the grafting of that branch into the vine so that the life of the vine flows into that branch and it lives. It lives. So if you're a believer tonight, you have been grafted by the Spirit into Christ. And the third thing to say about this attachment, this union with Christ is that it's by God's gracious choice Jesus goes on to say in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. So what does it mean to be united to Christ? It's a living relationship. Faith is the instrument. By faith we believe into the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the, is the vital divine cause. He baptizes us into Christ. And the Word of God is the instrument of His relationship with us. You are clean by the word that I've spoken to you. So you're a Christian then. You're a believer. I'm taking that for granted. And you belong to Christ. What is the Father's interest in you? Let's read this again. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. If God's great passion for you and me is that we become fruitful Christians, producing the kind of good works now that account with God, and, and can I step back from that for a moment and say this? B.C. and A.D., before Christ, that is in your life, before Christ, your good works count for nothing. They are filthy rags. But since you now belong to Christ, your good works Get God's eye and God's commendation. They count with God. Beforehand, they don't count. Now they do count. That's why it's important. The Father is looking for these good works. Now, look at this. Not only does He take away the fake stuff, the dead wood, but He works on those who actually have the life of God in them to produce more fruit. And that involves a painful process. If you think about it for a moment, one scholar, B.F. Westcott, puts it like this, everything is removed from the branch, which tends to divert the vital power from the production of fruit. God is more interested in your holiness than in your happiness. God is more interested in you being a fruitful believer in producing the kind of good works that bless your neighbours and your family and your friends and your loved ones than he is in anything else. There's an element of discipline in pruning. You just think about it. Pruning sounds painful, doesn't it? Somebody coming along with a secateurs or whatever they are and starting to snip snip at your life, it gets painful. And there's no doubt that God can use sorrow and sickness and suffering and loss and bereavement and disappointment and frustrated ambition. He can use those things to do his work of purifying your heart and your life. The writer to the Hebrews says, the father disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. That's part of the process of the Christian life. Pruning is a drastic process. I've seen pruning done by an expert gardener. And you cut it right back. When we lived in Canada, we used to come down the Niagara, the, past the Niagara Escarpment on the way to Niagara Falls. When we lived in Canada, we had all these people from the UK come to see us. Well, they didn't come to see us. Apparently, they came to see Niagara Falls. And, and we went down there so many times, you know, I would just come down and say the waterfalls over there and go for coffee. Uh, but on the way down, you would pass all these vineyards. And in the winter, all you saw were these Stubs sticking out from the soil. Black stubs. But when you came down later in the summer, you saw them profuse with grapes. Pruning is a drastic process. And there's no doubt that God uses suffering in the life of a believer. When the pressure's on, that's when what's in you comes out. Malcolm Muggeridge was a a television personality in the UK and he became a Christian and he wrote about this whole business. And he, he once wrote this, suppose you eliminated suffering, what a dreadful place the world would be. I would almost rather eliminate happiness. The world would be a ghastly place because everything, everything that corrects the tendency of this unspeakable little creature Man to feel over-important and over-pleased with himself would disappear. He's bad enough now, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. Suffering reminds us of our fragility and our mortality and our utter dependence upon God. Johnny Erickson Tadden, my one of my heroes, wrote this, God could have healed me but he did a greater miracle. He put me in a wheelchair and put a smile on my face. Often the time of pruning comes into the life of a believer. When it comes your way, I want you to remember the teaching of Jesus here, that the knife that cuts is in your father's hand. It's in your father's hand. Amy Carmichael, great missionary, had this prayer Rid me, good Lord, of every diverting thing. And she went on to write this. What prodigal waste it appears to be to see scattered on the floor the bright green leaves and the bare stem bleeding in a hundred places from the sharp steel. But with a tried and trusted gardener, there is not a random stroke in it all. Nothing cut away which it would not have been loss to keep and gain to lose. And if you're going through the mill, if you're going through a time of trial and trouble in your life, God is cutting away things and you're wondering why, and the, the stems, as it were, are bleeding and the scattered leaves are lying all around on the ground, and it looks a mess, and you're wondering why. Remember that. Nothing cut away. That it would not be loss to keep and gain to lose. The gain is what God is wanting to produce in you as He makes you more like Christ. Well, I can't see the time. Uh, So right about now, I make a decision. Do I keep going or stop? I keep going for just a little while. The second little thing there is this word abiding. Abiding. Abide in me. So, the first few verses have established the relationship between Jesus and his people. Established by the Father's will and work. The work of the Father, by the word of the Son. And uh, Jesus uses this word to abide which means to maintain and develop this already existing relationship. More exactly, we are to abide in Christ and allow Christ to abide in us. So there's this double duty. Look at verse four. Abide in me and I in you. And there's a sense in which, at this point, we cooperate. You know, in salvation, we don't cooperate. Salvation is monergistic. All the work is God's from beginning to end. But in the Christian life, once we are in Christ, there is a synergistic model. It is you and I together with God working. So abide in me, Jesus says. That's our duty, isn't it? And I in you, there's this double thing. We must allow him to be Lord and life giver. We must yield to him control. Look out for his enabling and humbly rely on him to supply our need. And there are active steps that we must take. We're we're to actively press on into Christ against all the tendencies of the the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're, We're not to kind of settle for a kind of mediocrity in our Christian life. Nor are we to allow ourselves to be diverted into other good and worthy causes, but that are different from the process of becoming holy people. And don't let holy people put you off. Holy people are more human than unholy people. It's the total personality of a person, gripped in the grip of grace and by the grace of God, showing in their humanity, in their personality, temperament, and manner, and so on, the power of God at work. You are most godlike when you are most you, by the grace of god isn 't that great so you don 't have to copy someone else. I, I used to try to do this when I was a, when I was a young man and, and uh, heading for the ministry. I had my models of ministry, and the models of ministry I tended to have were kind of kind of sober people. you know they were very serious and sober. Well, I tried to do that for when I was a first minute, you would not have recognized me in the early days of my ministry. I really was very sober, very. I never never cracked a smile or made a joke or anything like that. That was very ungodly and very unspiritual and so on because I wanted to be like these great and godly men who were very, very serious and sober and so forth. But there is no personality style that equals holiness. It's you God is making holy. As you are, you in all of the beauty of what God has made you as his image bearer in the world. So what are we to do? We're to abide. That's an active action. Bishop Ryle puts it like this. He says, what Jesus is saying here is, abide in me, cling to me, stick fast to me. Live the life of close and intimate communion with me get nearer and nearer to me roll your burden on me cast all your weight on me never let your hold of me go for a moment focus your life on the prize of christ how do we do that in practice how do we do that in practice well be diligent in the means of grace god has been very gracious to us He knows that in the rough and tumble of our everyday lives, we're distracted by the things at work and at home. We're distracted by all the events that we're seeing on the news. We're distracted by all the demands of living a life in a complex world. People always were and they always will be. He knows that. So, what has he done? He's given us a day. He's given us a Lord's day. He's named it after himself, the Lord's day. That tells you something. It's the possessive, it's the Lord's day. It's his. And he gives that to the church, he gives it to you. And it was made for you. That's what Jesus means when he says the Sabbath was made for man, it was given for your benefit, for your advantage. It's there in your calendar, week by week, as the time when God in His great mercy gives you access to the means of grace. The means of grace, the ordinary means of grace. There's no great secret, no great solution, no great esoteric way to become holy. It's the Ongoing, steady work of the word of God among the people of God when they're gathered together as God's covenant community. If I were to say in my own Christian life what is had the greatest impact on me, I would have to say it's, it's being with the Lord's people in the Lord's day under the Lord's word. That's had the biggest impact. And the Lord's day... And the Lord's people and the Lord's word are the primary means of grace. Public worship, the word and sacraments, the primary means to make you strong. You see, here's where we get it wrong. You see, some people, they want to inject that really what the Christian life is all about is doing evangelism. Or what the Christian life is all about doing mercy ministry is all about having small groups and talking about where you are in your christian life and so forth and kind of uh, you know sharing your burdens and problems and so forth and those things are good in them in their own place but that is not what it's all about it's not what it's all about what sustains you as a christian you can do without all of that stuff you really can what sustains you as a christian is the Lord's day with the Lord's people under the Lord's word. That is the primary means of grace. Now flowing from that, of course, there's your daily reading and prayer and so on. And you'll struggle with that from here to heaven. I tell, I'm telling you that right now. You'll struggle getting the time for that, being disciplined in that. You'll do, struggle with that all the way to heaven, which is why God has put in your calendar one day that you can't miss. So this is how we abide in Christ. It's absolutely indispensable to holiness. The Christian is likened to a fruit tree, not a Christmas tree, as I said. And authentic Christian holiness is the visible manifestation of the invisible life of Christ within our hearts. That's what Jesus is saying here. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. You're trying to live the Christian life on your own, you won't do it. You think you can go on, uh, maybe you're watching this by webcast and your idea is you can get on in your Christian life as a solitary Christian at home watching this webcast week by week, Period. No, you can't. It's okay for you to be at home watching this tonight. But if you aren't building into your life normally, when you can and have access to it, the Lord's day with the Lord's people around the Lord's word. The means of grace. Where do we see this means of grace working its way out in our lives? Well, we see it work its way out as we discover that when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, he meant zero. He meant nothing. You can do your academic work without Christ. You can pursue your career path without Christ. You can start a relationship without Christ. You can marry a partner Without Christ, you can start a family without Christ, you can plan your vacation and manage your finances, you can do all of that without Christ. People are doing that without Christ all around us. But you can't be a fruitful Christian without Christ. And you cannot do the good works that bring glory to God without Christ. And you cannot, in the language of the Apostle Paul and Colossians, lead a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Bearing fruit in every good work without Christ. So, believer, are you resting in, are you trusting in, is your confidence in your Lord Christ? Are you going on with Him? Are you making time for Him? Are you letting His word do its work? People say to me, Should I always take notes? You can take notes, that's fine, of sermons. But sometimes you just need to sit back and let the word of God do the work of cleansing, renewing thought and will and heart. Let's pray that he does that, shall we? For us and for others, let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word never returns void. It always accomplishes what you send it out to do. That your word in itself packs power That the preaching of the word of God is the word of God and the word of God makes alive and the word of God creates faith and the word of God produces fruit. We pray that as we attend to that word that you would increasingly show us more and more as the days go by how we are being transformed and changed from one degree of glory into another by the Lord who is the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.